Okay, thank you all very much for coming to my presentation, which is going to be about technology-assisted learning for ancient languages. My name's Maya, and I'm going to test you on the pronunciation of that in a minute. Uh, and I work uh, with my lovely supervisors, uh, Regina and Ushi, in the Centre for Research in Education and Educational Technology. And Linda also is um, a joy to be supervised by, and I have in absentia today, Eleanor Betts in um, classical studies, so I am very fortunate in the company I keep here. I'm going to warn you that I've got too many slides and too much information, and so I'm going to base this presentation on your body language as I go through it. If you look bored and tired, I'll just skip on, and if you look as if you might be interested, maybe we'll dwell on that in a little bit more detail. But I'm going to, first of all, set the context well, I would set the context if this would move on. They are set the context in which I'm working. So I'm interested in ancient languages, that's classical Latin and ancient Greek. And I'm interested in undergraduates, MAs, anybody at university who's studying those classical languages or ancient languages from the beginning, from scratch. And there's a little bit of Latin thrown in gratuitously, ab initio. Those are going to be um, courses that start for people who know nothing about those languages before they come. So, the rationale for this, the reason why I started doing this research, was first of all, anecdotal experience. I actually myself have been an undergraduate at the Open University studying Latin and ancient Greek, and also I did an MA at Manchester University where I continued to study both languages. And although in neither of those situations was I really starting at the beginning, I did meet quite a few students who had and who had found it difficult, and even one or two who had failed to progress at the language with devastating effect on their plans for their degrees or for their further qualifications. So that was one of my um, um, motivators for taking this on. Another motivator was my personal experience as a student here, where I developed a lot of resources, and if you're interested, we might come back at the, and look at them sometime. They look very amateurish to me now that I've read around a, a little bit more, but I did develop some online resources, um, mainly audio recordings and online collaborative translation, which helped me enormously in my studies. And so putting those two things together, I wondered whether spreading those two things uh, about might lead to something positive. Finally, I, I had a very disappointing uh, experience with reading fluency in that I've studied Latin for years and years. I did it in school, um, I helped my son with his A-level, I did it in university, I did it for my MA, and I still can't read fluently. And maybe that's something about me, that I don't have that gift, but I did find that after nine months of studying Italian with the Open University, my reading was much more fluent than my Latin reading, which is sad, but happy in a way. So it made me wonder whether there was something about something about the way that I'd learnt Latin and Greek that perhaps wasn't as um, enlightening as the way in which I'd learnt Italian or something that I'd done with Italian. Maybe there's something there. So those are two threads that will run through this presentation. Um, the idea of using technology, and the idea of how we actually approach being able to read in a language. Because the special thing about the two classical languages that I've mentioned is that we do actually only really want to be able to engage with ancient literature by reading them. There isn't, unless you're the Pope, perhaps, or, or you know, heavily involved in, uh, in, in, in the news which is broadcast from Finland in Latin, then there isn't a great deal of demand for speakers of Latin. 
and it is largely reading fluency that these ab initio courses are, are aiming towards. So that's why I took this on. And my aim, and naively, is to increase the success uh, of those who are studying uh, ab initio. I've put the word impact here because it always helps, doesn't it, if you can put impact into your presentation. And I'm hoping that my, my work, my research, will in some small way impact all those people uh, and make uh, people in institutions and make things just a little bit better for them. My uh, measurement of success, I, my, my, what I'm looking for in making things better, is that people actually do gain credit for the, the courses that they take on because that's important to them and part of their, their rationale for progressing their careers. And also that reading fluency uh, will be uh, increased. So, I have two draft research questions. The English is pretty lumpen at the moment, and I'm not going to ask you to read them. I'm going to paraphrase. The first one basically says, is it broken? Is it, is it, you know, do we actually have a problem here with the courses we've got at the moment? And the second question says, is there something we can do about it, inspired by the theory and practice of language learning from modern languages, or inspired by what we know of computer-assisted language learning? In those two, two disciplines. So if we look at my theoretical space, I've grandly called it a theoretical space here, then I, my little niche is there in the middle and around me I've got all the previous scholarship and research and practice in basically learning, second language learning, computer-assisted language learning, and my little niche in the middle where we will be doing ancient language e-learning. My empirical space is, as I've said, the UK universities and their ab initio courses, and particularly at the moment because it's easy for me to get at two courses with the Open University. Those are their two beginner courses, reading Latin and reading Greek. So those are the spaces in which I might be trying stuff out that relates back to the theories developed in my theoretical space. Sounds, sounds impressive, doesn't it? Now, this is the, the place where I'm probably going to skip on pretty quickly because um, this area is quite new to me. I've come here as a classicist, and the whole area of education and learning theories is quite a new experience. Although, believe it or not, a long time ago I was a maths teacher, but I didn't go in heavily at that time for learning theories. So I have some little reading um, and some little understanding around the, you know, the learning theories that we have and the competing learning theories that we have. And also, I know what a language learning theory looks like in that it's going to tell us the processes, it's going to explain the processes that go into learning, and it's maybe as well going to tell us what conditions are needed to make that successful. And behind me there is a tonne, it seems a very scary tonne, of research that has already taken place and led from theory, I hope the next slide is what I expected to be, yes it is, and led from theory towards various approaches and methods for language learning. I don't intend to go through all of these, but I will just mention that one at the top, grammar tra translation, which I think any of us who have studied Latin uh, in school in the past will have come across, whereby a large amount of time is spent focusing on the grammar of the language and using that then to decode um, texts or sentences or, or texts later on written in that target language. Uh, and that's a very prevalent method today. There are plenty of other methods, as you can see. And this is only a very, very small dip into the many, many uh, approaches and methods available to us in modern language theory, or arising from modern language theory. I've got here just a brief look at the stages that computer-assisted language learning has gone through. I'm indebted here to a, a recent 
journal paper in uh, Calico Journal. And it takes us through three main phases, which cleverly take ICT as the acronym on the left, but unfortunately resolve into TIC rather than um, ICT when we take them in chronological order. So we've got an area where everyone was very interested in the technology itself. Moving on to where we were interested in sharing information, using that technology and the flourishing of the web so that we could find uh, information and also authoring tools um, uh, on the web too. And to the phase that perhaps we are moving on to now from the 2000s onward where computer-mediated communication is the big thing. and so, hence my question this morning to Regina about, uh, you know, are we focusing first on technology, are we focusing first on theory, and that we must bring those theories together. So I will be attempting to bring together theories and practices from call and theories and practices from language learning to hopefully inspire and improve the teaching of ancient languages. So we're going to look now at my first question again, is it broke, does it need fixing? And as a subset of that, I have several questions Current methods, what do the students think? What do the students achieve? And what learning theories support what we're doing at the moment? So that I will be able to isolate a gap between what we do and what we potentially might do. And we're going to start by looking at what are the current methods. Now, I've got several ways of looking at this here. Um, Some of them are are my own research and some of them the research of others. So at the top there, we've got a a university survey uh, conducted by the... Oh, dear. CUCD. This is terrible. It's basically the Council of University Classics Departments. Oh, goodness, it came back just in time. Council of University Classics Departments. So that's a group of all the universities that teach classics and the the, the people there. Ran a survey in 1994 uh, in which they asked basically about teaching methods and materials. And that's not been repeated, but I do intend to repeat it this year, not in its entirety and not in its initial form, but I do intend to use that as a kind of baseline against which I can measure what's going on now and and report on change. I've also got the Open University course material available to me handily, so at least I can see what the current methods are here, Uh, and I will also be interviewing university staff um, to tell me about their practices. So let's have a look at what I know so far. This is 1994 data. Um, these are basically the textbooks that were in use, and it was assumed in that survey that the textbook was the centre of the course. You will see that the, the book on the top of this list is called Reading Latin. Some of you might have seen it, might have used it. It is the most popular by far, I would think, uh, in recent years in UK universities, so I will need to confirm that with my own research. And it is basically very um, open to use as a grammar translation tool. It has chapters set out by grammar paradigms, by, by learning the verbs, by learning the noun endings, all that. And then you might get led on to a text that uses those grammar uh, points and be asked to translate it. At that time also, this is a breakdown of what happened in class You can see we've got 40% exposition. I believe that's just talking at the class, telling them what the grammar paradigms are, probably. And then we've got various areas of uh, prepared reading, unseen translation. And you see the words unseen, uh, or you see the words translation there um, several times so that you can see, I think, that heavily at this time, at least, grammar translation was the approach in favour. 
These are the Open University materials as they stand today. You can see, interestingly, there's that same book, the Reading Latin book, based on that, that same uh, teaching method. Though it is amenable to using in the other direction, so that you take the text as your departure, as your point of departure, you try to read the text and then learn the grammar to fit in with that. So it is amenable to two, two approaches there. But you can see there's a much wider variety of materials provided, including CD notes, so we have some audio material, and we also have an interactive Latin website, and if you're interested, again, if we get a little chance later, I could show you around that. Uh, but I will just draw your attention to the fact that, as well as that, we have um, a little assignment booklet in which there are some self-assessment exercises, which I will come back to mention in a minute. So that's what's going on in the Open University. Well, le learning theories support that. Well, as I've gone through, I've basically pointed out that we have the grammar translation method figuring large, and then a theory called the input theory, which I think Regina mentioned this morning, though I think she fleshed it out with output and, and some processing in the middle too, and I've tried there to refer to Krashen's input hypothesis as well, so that we're providing comprehensible input to our students and that they can then take that as their point of departure and reading, careful reading of graded stories leads them into the language. So that's uh, the, what we've got. I did find a kind of startling quote from Richards and Rogers. It's a method which has no theory, grammar, translation. We have no foundation for um, believing that it works. I think that's perhaps a little bit uh, of an, uh, an exaggeration, but um, it's interesting how long it has prevailed and how it still does prevail. So what do the students think about this? Now, here's, I've got John sitting in front of me, so this is terrifying. But um, I'm going to talk to you about my open... John, John is an expert in statistics and surveys, as for anyone who happens to be on the internet and doesn't know. Um, so I've got here an open university satisfaction survey, which I didn't do. I'm indebted to our, our own surveys department for the results from that. I've done my own student survey, which was a comedy of errors that I might entertain you with in another full presentation. Uh, and I'm also interviewing students to find out what students think of our current teaching methods. So to start with uh, looking at what the satisfaction surveys told us, I can only use data from 2010 here because we haven't got it complete for uh, the, the years that I looked at. But if you look here, what I've done is I've put three courses together. A297 is the reading Latin, that's blue. A275 is the reading Greek, that's green. And A397 is a third level course for Latin, so that's a higher level course for Latin. I've reconstituted these from percentages, um, so, you know, uh, there's a little bit of a fudge factor in here. But the, what, what the graph is showing us here, I think, is that um, at, at first glance, the Latin course which I've described to you is less uh, satisfying the materials provided for that course were less satisfying than those provided for the higher level course or for the new Greek course. So that's very encouraging news for those who've devised the new Greek course. And I will say that the A297 course is being redesigned by one of my supervisors. So this is also encouraging that maybe there is some room for improvement there. Now, I've done a little bit of statistics. John, you must try not to laugh or criticise too heavily. But what I tried to do here is to take to do a chi-squared test to see whether there was any significant difference between the answers from those who um, were responding about their satisfaction with the reading Latin first level course and the reading Latin second level course. It's a bit confusing that actually A297 is second level and A397 is third level, but A297 is only an introductory course. So if I get confused, 
you know, that's just how it is. A297 is introductory and A397 is follow-on. And it looks to me here as if, and John will correct me if I'm wrong, as if we do have some significant difference between the satisfaction of those two courses. I'll let you come back at me when we get to the end. And that, in general, I think I could conclude that the students were happier with the higher level course. Except, it looks to me, as I felt put the A297 and A397 the wrong way around there. I'm going to move swiftly on. <laughs> okay, so, Open University Student Survey. This is one I did myself. These are the responses. Basically, I took 100 students from each of the six cohorts you can see here. Three courses, two years, and I invited 100 from each. So I can easily see what my response rates are. I got 34% response rate from the A275s uh, for year 2011, etc. For the rest of the presentation, I'm mostly going to concentrate on the initial Latin course and tell you what I found uh, from them. So basically, we're looking at 62 people. And here I'm asking them basically about their happiness with that book that I referred to earlier, the, the, reading, um, the reading Latin book. Um, how useful did you find it in terms of language learning? And they were asked to respond on that scale. So these are responses that we got, uh, and you can see those the number of students for each response. So you will see that there is quite a lot of happiness with the book, but also quite a, a number of people, 10 in fact there from my survey, who found it poor or very poor, and we had 12 who didn't answer. So as a comparator to that, let's just have a look at the usefulness of the interactive Latin site. And you'll see, even though I haven't handily put them together, that we have far fewer people finding that poor. And um, have we got more people? Not, not more people finding it good, but at least not more complaining about it. So let's have a look at what people said about that interactive Latin site and why they thought it was good or bad. Um, you, can, you can see that yourself. And you can see what the things that they've appreciated are. Use it anywhere. Consolidating and practicing. And instantly know if I'm right or wrong. Um, and finally, that self-assessment exercise which is on paper that I mentioned and you will see of the three that we've looked at nobody thought this was poor at all this is just a paper exercise with multiple choice answers that you can go through to gauge your process, nobody thought that was poor uh, and most people found it good or very good. So that's an interesting result that people were quite keen on, on this paper exercise and in fact it looks a little keener than the self-assessment. That doesn't mean that the, that the, sorry the interactive Latin, that doesn't mean the interactive Latin isn't useful what it means is that there are people who find different resources more useful than others. And there are certainly a large number who did find it useful. Okay, looking at the following statements, they were asked to, dis to tell me then whether they benefited from the use of technology. Uh, and basically the questions are about benefiting. Should we have more technology? And is using technology not appropriate? And those are the results that we have for that. You can see quite a lot agree that it is of benefit to them. Quite a lot want more. And a, a, a very few, these two here, think that is not appropriate. So there are still people who think that's not appropriate and that's to be respected. And so that we can't just flip over to everything will be technology. The paper exercises and the books are still going to keep, stay popular with some of our um, customers. 
I promise I did this before I saw Regina's presentation this morning, which had a lovely wordle in it. I promise. Honestly, I didn't. I've even got the same colour. Does that mean our great minds think alike? You see, that's what it will be. So, explain briefly what, if anything, you found most valuable. And you can see here, leaping at, out at us, interactive. Some of that is reference to the interactive Latin site. Useful. But we also see over here that exercises and vocabulary are still very valued. People are still very interested, rather than in the communicative aspects of anything, in, in being able to do repetitive exercises and being able to learn their vocabulary. Okay, swiftly on, what results did the students achieve? And I can look at this through various uh, methods, but the one that I'm going to show you here, because I haven't um, pro uh, progressed as far as... Um, I have with other areas uh, with those. I'm just going to show you the Open University statistics. So this is answering, uh, in part, my question, is it broke? Do we need to fix it? These are the uh, results that I've got for 2011 for those two introductory courses. You'll see the reds are fail, no, reset, or withdrew. So those people definitely did not get credit. Now, that seems quite an alarming statistic, but I will tell you that it is not out of line with other courses and with other language courses. Um, it is a higher uh, dropout rate than the higher level Latin course. Um, but uh, it does, I think, for me, um, justify an attempt to improve things and to provide perhaps more varied help for our varied customers. I might skip swiftly on over this one, yeah, and I will then go to say what I've answered uh, this morning, or what I've tried to show you this morning, is a bit about, this afternoon, is a bit about how I'm setting out to answer my first research question. And now I'm going to say, whatever am I going to do next? And obviously, there's a lot of work still to do on that. That's only a flavour of my methodology, a flavour of how I'm approaching my research. And I've got this whole big question of what might I do that I bring, that SLL is second language learning theories and computer assisted language learning opportunities, how could I pull those together, how can I swap my gap to take something from that to help with ancient languages and if I can do that, how am I going to demonstrate success, so those are the questions that keep me awake at night these days and any suggestions and any feedback on what I've done so far will be most welcome. Particularly if there's anyone on the web wants to send in an easy question, that would be very nice. We are monitoring web questions. The numbers in your chi-square table don't add up properly, so you might want to check that. I suspect two of them be swapped over. Yes, I they, think should, they should have added up to 100 percent I think I have um, I think I have reversed the the, the columns or the rows. Anyway, I'm, I'm very sorry about that. It was there to test you, to yes. check you were watching. Well, of course, you know, we're dragged to a bull and all that. Um, what I can't tell is whether you think there's something different or special about incorporating technology into language learning courses as opposed to incorporating technology into anything else. Because there's a huge literature that you could turn to about technology and higher education or technology and education in general. So if we go back to my theoretical space diagram here, it's I think what you're I can get back to it. What you're saying to me is perhaps that I've made it all a bit neat and tidy and that in fact somewhere out there I've got computer assisted learning that isn't specifically for languages. 
Start criticism. No, no, no. no, 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 no Getting the question. Yeah. Um, because if, if you say there is something special about language learning, then you've got to construct an argument to say why it's different. If you don't want to make that argument, then you've got at least got to refer to this quite huge literature. Fortunately, there are some very good reviews of that literature. Um, my colleagues, Linda Price and Adrian Kirkwood, have published a couple of very helpful reviews. The latest issue of Educational Research Review also has a review which includes school education as well as higher education. And the, the conclusion of all this stuff is that technology itself is useless. It's whether it's integrated into the pedagogy that's important. And that makes me wonder whether your interactive website has just been tacked onto the course so the students don't really know what to do with it. Now, did the course exist before the website? Yes, it did. In which case, yes, what's did. the website doing? Well, the web, what the website does, in, in addition to what is already there, is provide a way of testing yourself, basically. It's very like the equivalent of the self-test paper, piece of paper with multiple choice answers, yeah? It's, it's a, an equivalent to that. But it has maybe some advantages that we saw the, the students referring to there being able to access it anywhere. And there's more of it. You know, you, there, you can run it as many times as you like and get different questions to, to, to undertake. So it does have some advantages, but I don't think it adds to the pedagogy at all. You know, in some ways it duplicates what's already there on paper, but makes it more accessible. Yeah? This is far too early, but I think you probably should be thinking about when you submit your thesis, what kind of person do you think should be examining it? Is it somebody who knows about technology and higher education, or is it somebody who knows specifically about second language learning? Well, that's a very interesting question. And I already have acquired additional supervisors because of interests in different areas. I think I see how to go for a fifth here. Um, uh, you're not yes, allowed to no, use your supervisors as examiners. You need to say that. All right. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, have you finished, John? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, two things, because it's kind of two different things. The first one is, I really, really think the point about there is no theory grammar is a really powerful point. I don't know why, but it seems really powerful. Uh, because it really shocks English teachers when they realise that point. David Crystal has written loads on this. In, in the Sorry, case what, can I just clarify what you said something about there is no theory? There is no, there is no base theory for the, for the, for, for the grammar. For grammar, for grammar translation. And, there, and, 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 and David Crystal has written loads on this in relation to English language and, and literacy. And it, and it really shocks English teachers when you actually point that it's simply an accepted commonsensical dogma. And, and it's really quite shocking when you say, well, no, here, this is, this is, we've written loads on this, and it's actually, it's just, it's just accepted commonsensical dogma. And that's gone on for so long that we just accept it. Um, and I think, I think David Crystal might be really productive for you in terms of that. The other thing I was going to say, which is, it was just me, but in terms, when you were doing all of the kind of, I've looked at these these people. I've looked at these oh. people. I kind of wanted to know something about the demographics. Oh, I kind of wanted to know who they. I kind of wanted to know who they were. I wanted to know why they were doing. You know, were they from Brighton? Were they from London? Were they middle class? I kind of wanted to know why they were choosing to do Latin or ancient Latin and Greek, which seemed really funky and, and kind of interesting subjects. And I kind of wanted to know did the, did who they were have an impact? Where they were coming from? Did that have an impact? You know, because it, it suddenly seemed like I had a hundred people 
and, which is interesting yeah. but it suddenly made them sound like they were this homogenous mass and, 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 and suddenly they were going there do you know what I mean? And I actually wanted to know where they were coming from. Did there, did those, did some, some, a little bit of demographics to go, you know, did the 14 who failed, did they have anything in common before they got there that made, that had an impact on them? I just thought that there were a little bit of that. I really liked it, by the way. That's, that's, not, that's not meant as a huge, but I just thought a little bit, when you clearly had all, so much data, I would have liked just a little bit more demographics to kind of, so that I could, you know, is this generalizable? Are these people, gen- is their experiences general, or are they, you know, are, what kind of validity am I being, am I being placed with by their experiences? Well, I have actually got a ton of uh, demographic data attached to these people. It doesn't tell me if they come from Brighton, but it no, does but tell me. I have got age and gender and yeah, I would a like lot to... of background information against them, which I could uh, and will, you know, try to set about analysing. But I'm not sure that my my numbers are big enough to do anything very clever statistically with it. Um, but what I am doing is interviewing <coughs> students and interviewing them on the basis of, um, well, they had to volunteer to be interviewed, but on the basis of how well they did and how well they liked the materials, yeah? So I am talking to some people to dig deeper into uh, you know, their experience here. Uh, but I haven't, I haven't analysed that yet. Uh, so I have a question, but there's also a question from the web from Trevor Boyd. Oh, Trevor, how um, lovely! <laughs> Thank you! <laughs> who wants to know, do you have a view on reading aloud and how that relates to reading fluency? And if so, how can technology address that? Well, that is a really, really interesting question, Trevor. Thank you very much for coming into I, I do have some very strong feelings about reading aloud, and I do regret hugely the lack of oral uh, activity in, in the courses that I've attended. And in fact, one of the things that I most regret is um, a kind of embarrassment, perhaps, about speaking or reading in the ancient language. Um, it is very difficult to, to uh, see how I'm going to address that with technology. I would very much like to. Uh, and if you, you have any ideas, or if anyone in the room has any ideas on how we might address that with technology, we have had ideas about text chat, but that doesn't really bring us into that oral uh, area. I have, as you know, experimented with recording um, texts and recording them with very lively um, overacting, <laughs> uh, so, so that I have tried to, to some extent, to restore um, that, that oral aspect uh, of language learning. But I haven't really put together how we might use that, uh, how we, we might use technology to restore. What I think um, we're looking for is something closely approximating the communicative aspect of modern language courses where we can communicate with the uh, native speakers or we can try and communicate with each other. Um, and that's very difficult with, with languages where the proponents are mostly unreachable now. Though there are, I believe, courses that do go for full immersion um, uh, in America and also in Europe at the moment. <laughs> That's my question. Um, so uh, I had a, a po- possible suggestion and then just a comment as well. So the suggestion with the th- with these surveys, one of the things, a method that I quite like is kind of forced choice uh, method where you give people options and ask them to pick one or other, because it helps you to distinguish them more easily, and depending on how you set them up, um, you can constrain it a little bit more than the kind of Likert scale, where it's sometimes quite hard to see, well, why? <laughs> you know, 
why is this the case uh, across people? Um, so, preferences for different medium for certain types of activity might be um, a possibility there. Um, and then the other thing was on the pedagogy side again, that this the pedagogy, but there's also the assessment. So, with the uh, with the way the course has developed over the years, it'd be interesting to know how assessments changed as well. And whether or not that's kept pace with how technology's changed, whether or not it's still very traditional, etc. Um, because that obviously impacts on how people perceive what they're doing. And part of the measure of satisfaction will be what their expectations are. So you could give me a tool that in some contexts I would be very satisfied with uh, because my expectations for how it's to be used in the course and my expectations for the outcomes of that course um, mean that I can see a very obvious and practical purpose for it. But in a different context, well, I've got no reason to be satisfied with the tool. So, this is, yeah, I suppose caution on uh, how satisfaction measures are yeah. uh, interpreted. I will say that the assessment method hasn't changed from day one. On right, that course, yeah. it's, it's exactly as it was. Yeah. Yeah, but hopefully the new course, um, which has been designed, will, will address it. Interesting. Yeah. Can I just ask if you explored any models of e-learning? Uh, no, I think is the simple answer to that. But perhaps you'd like to perhaps you well, because I'm doing a similar thing, but it's looking at general engagement in social sciences students. And there are several models that have attempted to conceptualise you know, the type of learning activity that goes on. <laughs> particularly Biggs and Tang constructed alignment, which argues that working from your outcomes, you embed tasks that lead into the assessment, and that might link in with the idea of, you know, how stable is the assessment really, and do the activities kind of lead to the end goal, or do the students see them as kind of remote? Yes. Which I find yes. on the courses that I'm on, you know, that sometimes the embedded tasks really don't count towards the assignments, and students, why would I do it? Yeah. Yes, when you could cut straight to the chase, yes, yes. as I have sometimes <laughs> done, just do the assignment. Yeah, so it could be another area to explore. I'm not trying to load you up. No, no, no. It's quite a lot. No, it's a, it's a, it's a good idea. did the good idea. one. Uh, um, Con- Canoli, Granny Canoli, she's got her models of online learning. She's from here, but moved on yeah. to Leicester, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I, I didn't realise they even existed until I started scratching the surface. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, for that point, then. Yeah. I'm just a bit aware that I might be edging John out. There's also the conversational framework down on our lines, which is really really nice. And I've seen people use um, Scandinavian activity theory to have a more holistic um, way of looking at users with learners with tools achieving some outcome. And you've got sort of you know community community rules and so forth. Yeah. That's, it's nice. It's nice as well. Thank you. Good yeah. Yeah, I'll get you to write that down before you escape. Yeah. Well, I might be able to pick it up on the recording. Okay. Uh, John, are you willing to swap places here? Thanks, everybody, um, for, for um, bearing, 
until now. Um, it's, um, it's kind of appropriate that we start with somebody in the first lecture this morning who was at the beginning of their, their, um, their research work. And uh, I'm coming in at the end, when I'm just at the end of my research work. I've just finished my, my thesis and I'm, um, I'm awaiting a viva. And so this is a great opportunity for me to at least um, talk a little bit about um, what I've been doing in um, you know, some context where people will get it, you know, I hope. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my project which related to authentic science writing um, in Irish second-level schools. It's, it's, a, it's um, a smaller title than the title of my ID thesis, but it's, um, uh, this talk is short. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, authentic science learning. Um, and I don't do Windows, okay? So um, I do everything on a Mac and converted, so some of this might be very busy, but it looks fine for it. So um, authentic science learning, then, it relates to teaching and culturation and preparation of science students for competent and authentic scientific practice or utility in modern society. That's a, that's, um, a definition. It's one definition of science, um, authentic science learning from McGinn and Roth. Um, what happens is that you have people from the, within science giving us a, a perspective. You've got people from within science education, you've got people from within applied linguistics, all giving various perspectives on science and science learning. But um, you, so, so I'll probably change the, the, the definition a little bit as I move um, through, through this talk. But it's been found that um, research studies, um, ASL approaches lead to significantly greater gains in understanding of science concepts and science vocabulary. And um, they find that the best form of authentic instruction is one that includes appropriate balance of multiple learning modalities and, uh, and utilising reading and writing strategies that are authentic to the scientific discipline. I mean, I was thinking about you with, earlier, you know, which are um, reading, also writing and composition is really, really important. It's important for science. So um, authenticity in science requires text roles that include context um, provision and delivery where learners situate the research and read to learn it includes modelling, where learners read and replicate the procedures and approaches of others. And finally, support first and second-hand investigations, where learners read reference material and interpret others' findings and data respectively. Because these are all really important for, for practicing scientists, regardless of your scientific discipline. Um, my ID um, research that was concerned with um, authentic science writing, okay, and in particular investigating collaborative science writing at second-level school in Ireland using an online collaborative writing environment. So I had the, the issues and problems that you've had um, in terms of um, trying to find a theoretical framework for this. It was quite difficult initially. So my perspective, however, I mean, because there are many perspectives you could take within this context, is that science learning is inherently bound up with learning language and learning to use language in new ways. It's about organising new kinds of text, appropriating linguistic resources that are fundamental to scientific literacy development, and um, the use in particular of grammatical metaphor and, and indeed nominalisation. So authentic science writing assignments demand a deep, deep analysis of subject material and encourage students' um, uh, expansive thinking um, beyond just the classroom. So the primary challenges of authentic writing include engaging students in the kind of writing found in professional science. This is from Montgomery. He's a, a teacher in, in a fairly well-published second-level teacher in the US who believes that the only way to teach science is through authentic science. Um, so, if you think about moving on with your definitions then from the scientists and the, the educationalists to the people who are really interested in science learning um, as, 
through science language and science literacy, um, Purcell Gates, neurosystemic functional linguistics people, um, uh, or scholars, they define authentic literacy as reading and writing of real-life texts for real-life purposes. So, you know, the students have to be doing something that's meaningful. It's not just some made-up kind of exercise just within the classroom. It has to be within some literary learning, literacy learning context also. Keyes then, more later, associates authentic learning in science with writing an accepted scientific genre. So it's not just enough to write some essay. You have to be writing the kinds of genre or participating in the kinds of discourses that scientists would participate in some authentic way. And, of course, there are different sciences, ethnosciences, so people have different kinds of discourses, and, and that can be difficult for the teachers and for schools. Um, Keyes also elaborates on how genre-based writing provides opportunities for in-depth thinking and promotes the crystallisation of new thinking and new ideas. So um, a key aspect of authentic enculturation is the participation in all, aspect, all aspects of the discourse associated with scientific learning. So there's the engagement, from my perspective, it's the engagement in team-based collaborative working participation in the development of collaboratively written scientific genre. Of course, there are always going to be scientists who are solo workers, but modern science tends to favour team-based um, for, for, for many, many reasons. But, you know, this is modern, authentic science. So that's the general area. Um, so my motivation for this is that, um, well, I, I'm a scientist. I mean, I, I graduated in 86 with a degree in physics and maths, and I had a PhD in physics in 1990. It's just like an age ago, um, and um, I'm interested in dynamics and thermodynamics. Then I worked in the computer science department for the best part of 17 years, and I've been working in digital humanities since then. So I might look at ancient texts now and use um, hyperspectral imaging to try to recover text that's been missing for hundreds of years. That kind of stuff. So I'm still using science, albeit in a humanities context. So, so while people talk about STEM, I talk about STEAM. You know? so we have to include the arts in there. I talk a lot about generating STEAM because there's lots of, lots of um, me getting caught up with the collar and also uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of really good science in humanities context. I didn't get to study science very well in school because in the 70s and 80s, I had a, what would have been a typical female education. I, I, um, girls didn't do honours, and uh, as a social scientist would tell us, but also they didn't do physics and, and maths. And I happened to be in the girls' class, and so I picked up, I picked up um, science, physics in particular, in university. And so my enculturation into science was working with scientists, not that chalk-and-talk experience in school. So um, the collaborative nature of science. So I, I couldn't understand when I started looking and working with science, children coming into science, how it was so different for me, and I wanted to work at that. So, um, I'm also interested in computer-mediated communication. I mean, it's, I've always been. I'm, I'm more interested in the, in the humans than the computers, I mean, um, in many respects. Um, but I, I don't believe that you should be introducing technology just for the sake of new technologies. It has to be really useful and meaningful for the students. And, and I like the fact that it will help mediate communication, but the communication is what's important. Um, I've been supervising students in, in computer science and computer science learning, um, but uh, you know I felt I didn't really know enough about education, and um, so I went back to college, did an MED here. Um, you mentioned earlier about the distance-based one; it was very positive. I did science learning, literacy development, and education research in preparation for an MED, and I've been doing it for a long time. Um, and um, at this point, I'd like to thank Caroline and Chris, who I think might be looking in on, online. Um, I wouldn't have got to where I am today without their amazing help and encouragement. Okay, so we all have research aims. 
um, and these move very quickly into a search question. My aim was to investigate how language is used to construe scientific meaning for children in second-level schools doing science. Um, in particular, in the context of text-based electronic collaborative exchange in a collaboratively written library research genre, in other words, what they write, and what's the relationship if it exists. And then my evaluation framework was within a systemic functional linguistic framework. That was hard, and I'm not sure I've got it, but I think I've done enough to get me this far. Um, uh, I had four very, very specific questions. I wanted to choose a specific scientific work, and somebody mentioned earlier about science being all agreement. And I mean, I'm really interested in contested science, so I had students work on writing a paper on the physical properties of global warming, because it's, you know, hotly, hot topic, if you excuse the pun. But, um, but um, I developed a software environment where I could capture all-time recording, accessibility to all, all collaborative exchanges, the final genre, all the interim drafts of the student writing, and then try to look at how the various comments impacted on the evolution of the texts for various writing groups. So each cooperatively written genre and the associated comments and discussions derive from small, asynchronously communicating writing and review peer groups of four students and a single teacher. And I have four very specific questions. The first two we'll talk about today. How authentic are students' science papers collaboratively produced in an online environment? In other words, can they really do that science that we would expect in these environments in school? And the measures of authenticity would relate to how close does the textual structure of a prototypical library report um, uh, or genre are the actual papers. In other words, how close is it to the model exemplar? Um, and to what extent do the papers use the language of science? Um, expected at this level of schooling? And um, what's their use of normalization, for example? And what is the degree of participation and contribution by the students in collaboratively? That was my first thing. The other questions, um, of which the first I'm just going to deal with here today, how do students' collaboratively written texts evolve or change over time in terms of their textual structure and in terms of their key linguistic features? And I was also interested in how can the text exchanges and evolution be explained in relation to the online dialogue and feedback? In other words, you know, is there that connection? I mean, and this connection between the two would be um, not statistical um, you know, or anything like this. It would be it would be related to the linguistic choices that the, the students would make, both in their communication, in terms of peer communication, their peer mentor communication, and the subsequent evolution or revision of the texts. And then, of course, what are the implications for pedagogy and policy? It's really important as part of the ED that, you know, something that distinguishes the ED is that, you know, this has to be useful for you as a practitioner. It has to be useful for, for um, your community. Um, and, you know, you have to really look at your work in some professional context. Um, so, this particular question... No, we can move that one. Um, move from this one. Okay, so I worked in uh, developing and writing a collaborative writing environment um, some papers in, in computers and education, the latter one, um, we developed this environment and we were using the software to control telescopes in Chile from the classroom, um, real-time astronomy, and then the students could write and, 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 and talk about this kind of stuff. So it was real-based science. You could use tools to do science. Um, the software supports group-based online asynchronous collaborative writing. Each group member writes a, an agreed section of a report and this software called EVE and provides student and teacher access, group construction, allocation, all of those things that you'd expect. 
It includes global and commenting, uh, global and local commenting context, so you can send messages to each other, you can comment on what somebody's writing and so forth. You know, this was pre, this was developed pre-Google, right? You know, so I mean, you can do a lot of that stuff now. Um, I wrote, I'm, I'm a software person, I wrote software to modify all the software to capture all writing context. So I could snoop, if you like, on every single thing that happened within the system and log it to databases based on triggers. So I could um, capture all of those data for later analysis. Um, and speaking of analysis, I need to look at analysis um, in terms of science. So we had to use systemic functional linguistics, um, which is a model of grammar that was developed by Michael Halliday in the 1960s. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a theory of language centered around the notion of language function, and I'm under pressure, so I'm just going to um, tell you a little bit about the language of science. So um, we can look at systemic functional linguistics um, within a science context, and um, Halliday, um, and later there's um, a really excellent book by Halliday and Martin, which tells us about, about the kinds of linguistic features of scientific texts, and they would include interlocking definitions, technical taxonomies, special expressions, the lexical density, syntactic ambiguity, grammatical metaphor, which really interests me, and semantic discontinuity. And um, to tell you a little bit about nominalization, have a look at this sentence. To prepare a poster requires ED students to prepare the text and graphics, check all material for accuracy, justify included material, and organize the elements into logical sections. I could have written it differently. I could have said, preparing an ED poster requires the preparation of text and the graphics, checking all the material for accuracy, justification of included material, and organisation of text. And what's happened here is that um, the, the latter one is a more nominalised form. Um, it, express, um, it expresses uh, meanings as more stable, permanent states. Scientists you know, like to talk about, instead of saying, I measured, in a paper they'll talk about the measurement. You know, it's almost like turning the happening into something that happened that makes, becomes more permanent. So people are more likely to believe the fact that you have a measurement that exists. It's not, you can't refute that, rather than the potential that you measured and could have gone wrong. So, you know, so the choices that you make when you're writing are really, really important in trying to convince the reader. And what's really important from um, an enculturation into science is that we want students to be able to do this. You know, we want them to be able to look at this um, understanding of what's important, of what's acceptable. Acceptable for various kinds of genre in, in science. And um, so really, we, we're trying to look at whether students can move from where actions and processes are expressed as verbs, um, where, where we have something that's um, more characteristic, char characteristic of spoken language, to, to um, this more um, nominalized form. So, so Halliday himself says that, you know, the scientific writing has evolved to be very, very complex, and does form that metaphoric form of representation. And that's, um, you know, it's, um, he's emphatic then in terms of his criticism that, you know, almost like it can go too far. But I think it's really, really important that children who want to become scientists um, don't think of just about method, but they think about their description of their method and, 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 um, and their communication of, of their, their science. So that's the kind of things that interest me. I'm trying to get. Groups of children working together, writing, and, um, and uh, collecting those data, investigating those data from a within a systemic functional linguistic framework to try to see, do they write like scientists, and, or do they not? Or in context, do they do, they don't? Look at revisions, and why do they make changes over time? So, This is my, um, my uh, approach um, that I used right through from meeting the students, 
creating, looking, finding schools. I had two schools collaborating, collaborating um, uh, across the net, um, if you like, to write collaboratively. So you had people working in the same school writing collaboratively, and you had students writing across the net writing collaboratively. I had male and female students. I had all students. It was fine. I had um, I brought all the students in to teach them about collaborative writing, to teach them about science, to teach them about how, uh, various kinds of interventions. I worked with the teachers. I spoke to the teachers about um, you know, systemic function linguistics, science writing, and um, all of these things. So it was quite, quite extensive. Um, it was a bit smaller when I did my preliminary case study. Or, and then preliminary study, then I had a, a, my main study, and that, had, that came to an end fairly abruptly for various reasons. The teacher got sick, couldn't continue, you know. So, I mean, and then, then I started again the next year, and, and then something else happened. So, you know, I captured lots and lots of writing, but never got to do everything I really wanted in terms of a final survey of students. Um, but we got lots and lots of writing. And that's the thing about systemic functional linguistics, is that you look at the writing in context, and that particular writing, and you say something about that particular context, which is um, what I was able to do. So these are the kinds of things I would have had students working on collaboration and science and, and uh, face-to-face and then online. Um, I gave them, uh, I took them right through the full procedure for genetic modification because, again, that's a con- an area of contested science. And then I, their, their actual assignments were, were, were in the area of um, global warming. I'm not saying there's any connection between those, but there is um, the method and the approach that I was using was, was, uh, was usable. These are the kinds of um, constructions of schools I would have had. If you look at the one on the left, I would have had a male school and a mixed school, and then you know the various teacher organisations, the composition of the teams. I knew, like you were asking earlier, about the, about the people you know that were involved. I knew everything I needed to know about these people, and um, even though they were small studies, but I might need to do this over a number of years and then be able to um, to look back and see you know well this kind of this kind of writing structure favoured this kind of approach or something. You know, so. Um, Again, this was, uh, I had three studies. I'm not showing you the first one. It wasn't as interesting. Um, in terms of the writing, uh, collaborative writing environment, you can see in the top left, the, the, the portal was called EVE. We could, um, students could log in. There's, um, they could see their team. They could talk about pre-preparation of their writing. They could have visual descriptions on the right-hand side of, of um, the structures of the paper rather than just looking at textually. Um, and then they could look at adding images and use all the various boundary objects you would expect in science to be able to write about. So it all works fine. This is, for example, um, a, a post um, uh, analyze. Uh, so it's my and um, some of my analysis of the text that was derived from a particular version. So this group of students, group number twenty, it's all been anonymized with this particular teacher, Mr. Black. <coughs> this is a version. It's the it's the draft twelve of of. Um, of one of the things. You'll see that there's various colouring and so forth. I did I wrote some software to do some preliminary linguistic analysis of all of the of all of the, the texts. Um, and uh, so that worked well. We also could capture all of the actual planning and writing here. Um, I'm interested as well in how the structure of the discourse and who's talking to who, so I could do this automatic looking at what students were talking, who the key students, who the participants were, who was the driver, the interventions of the teachers, all of this kind of stuff. Um, I wrote some software to look at the various drafts, and then, and then, so this would be draft. Uh, these two drafts are the same, but you know, I could actually try. There was so much, so much data 
I needed to be able to um, find visually where the text changed so I could then see how text changed. So I could use this overlapping and find where text changed. Um, uh, I could see the comments that the students had made during the discourse to try to look at, look at um, comparing you know, what happened in terms of change and potentially the kinds of discourse that may have motivated that change. And then I used um, much more sophisticated uh, tools to actually do the, the differences in the text so I could then do my linguistic analysis. So there were quite a lot of tools that I developed and used in order to be able to get to the point where I could, could do this work. So some findings and conclusions. So um, I was interested in nominalization. So can the students really do nominalizations? And for this kind of analysis, I used the final drafts of the papers. Okay? So the end point that they were happy with and I did a nominalization analysis. I wrote software to do this based on the work of Holtz, who gave lists on how you construct nominalizations in, in science. She did an analysis and survey of um, lots and lots of different kinds of science papers. And I did um, the same analysis and then made a comparison and found that, you know, if you look at the lexical density of the students, then they were slightly higher than, than you would expect in science papers. But I was able to see that they were actually very similar, you know, for, for each of the, the student classes over three years, different kinds of papers. And this was, these are just three samples. Um, the individual kinds of nominalizations would differ, but we were able to attribute that to the fact that some, some students in the earlier sessions, the earlier writing sessions, used much more physics-based papers than the, in global warming, because we gave them some papers in global warming. So the kinds of languages and the kinds of nominalizations they used were based on physics the latter students were able to do searching within Google, and the, the top papers you get in global warming tend to be much more social, more contested, talking about the social aspects of this, and they would have different kinds of normalization needs. So I, I attributed the differences to the kinds of source material that the students were reading, digesting, and then recommunicating, which was, which was interesting for me. So we found that, that, yes, the students, following this analysis, the students did actually show some evidence of, of being able to do normalizations, and so that was some... It, indicator of authentic science learning. However, we wanted to do an analysis of the, the genre. So how was the actual structure of the genre? So you remember if you have students doing different parts in terms of the collaborative writing, you have to look at the intertextual communication because you're not writing a particular section. You have to talk to another student to explain to them how to update their section and so forth. So do, when, you, when we did this... Um, this linguistic analysis, and I used um, a systemic functional linguistic analysis model by SO to do this on the individual papers. We found that um, the students just didn't, they didn't have a complete genre, they could work on various sections, and that their inter intertextual uh, evidence just wasn't there. So they could write about that little piece, but they couldn't write in context. So that I was able to attribute, well, I attributed to um, not knowing how to communicate um, or comment on the kinds of um, on the overall structure, not having the actual language to do that, and that wasn't the language of science. That was the language of how to engage with your peers on on how to do something. I felt that the intervention of the teachers at this point would have been really really important, but there wasn't really the skill on the teacher from the teacher to be able to do this either. So, my my overall conclusions in terms of that I'm not going to talk about now, uh, in any great length, is that the um, the continual professional development of the teachers is going to be really important. They need to know how to learn how to do this as well. It's really, really important for them. So, so there was no evidence of authentic science in terms of collaboratively written genre. 
as individuals they were fine, but as a collaborative team producing a holistic, a complete paper, it didn't work very well. I also then looked at the individual structured evolution of the collaboratively written genre. So I looked at maybe 50 or 60 drafts over time to see how each draft evolved. And I had you know, I have hundreds of drafts for lots and lots of papers. I was <coughs> stressed. Um, but anyway, again, I, the beauty of the systemic functionalist linguistics is that I was able to use that model, um, this time looking at the work of Gosden, to look at how the revision strategies and the revision categories. So I, did, I then I hand-coded all of these drafts to find how you, how, how the different kinds of revisions that students would make. Um, and I like to write software, but this really necessitates you to get in and do it, you know. But we found that, you know, the bulk of the, the change was the, just the addition of more technical detail or updating the existing individual sentences, um, or the deletion, and very often those were tied to the communication from the, the various other students. There was just reshuffling, but there was very, there was a bit of rhetoric to the machine, but not a lot. And um, but it was an interesting finding that, that students didn't deviate from the original planning to any extent. So once they decided on something and had said it away, they just worked on reworking how they might say it, but they weren't going to change their mind. So again, there wasn't that inter, intertextual or wasn't any communication, even though you might see in one, one paragraph something that disagreed with something in a letter paragraph because they hadn't written it, they weren't going to change their mind. So it was really, really interesting to see this. So you know, there wasn't a lot of authentic writing going on there. Um, Oh, they lost all this. Uh, anyway, I had some nice colour coding that showed um, the, the, how students actually did normalisation. So if you look at I was quite amazed and surprised to hear. It was amazing to hear that methane could be released. You see the, the normalisation things happening there? And you see a lot of these moving. Uh, I had colour coded, but that's Windows for you. You, know, you can't depend on it. And, uh, you can, you can um, I, I'm, if you're interested, I can show you. But really you can see that the changes that happened here um, were really interesting to, to look at the development. Well, I would say good, nominalized, good grammatical metaphor motivated by the kinds of comments that exist that, that we found down at the bottom left. And there are lots and lots of examples of these. But most of the, um, the students, that when, they, when they had comments from their peers, um, that usually resulted in some in, in improved nominalization and depersonalization of the text. So it was really exciting for me to see that. You know, that, that gave me some hope that that, that would happen. So my key findings um, on those two aspects is that for this writing project, and remember, you look at this work in this context, um, the student writers appear to know how to produce scientific discourse as individual writers, but didn't have the sufficient skills to collaboratively produce satisfactory authentic genre. In terms of the evolving, evolving linguistic features, it was shown student writers certainly respond to comments from peers and that revision usually results in further nominalization and depersonalization. It was found that student writers understand that nominalization is a key scientific writing activity, and it's likely they understand the function of nominalization in scientific text. The writing showed little evidence of intertextuality. There was a marked difference between the evolution of text and the preliminary and later research studies. So um, uh, that's it. Um, I would probably say that you know, much, of it, much of it relates to... If I had more discourse from the teachers, more engagement with the teachers, because I think we might have had different kinds of results. But it is what it is, you know, and, and, and you, you can only say about what you have. And uh, if I was to do the study again, we might find something different, you know, but, uh, with a different group of people. But um, um, I use sample, pa sample papers here, but they're typical of the kinds of results I found, even though there are lots of them. So um, sorry, there's a lot to digest, but, you know, I'm at the end, you know. So, <laughs> and thank you very much. Thank you very much.
Um, do, do you think there was any effect of assessment on the ways that the students interpreted what they were supposed to be doing? So what, what were they asked to do? Because if they were asked to do one set of things, I can imagine why they might produce the kinds of documents that they did where the bits didn't really join up, but they thought they'd put their best effort into the bits they wrote. Um, whereas if they were asked to produce a document where the whole group was assessed as a group, they were asked. Okay. Okay. So yes. they were asked. I didn't plan to talk about. We used them. Um, there's a. There's a. <coughs> again, motivated by systemic and functional linguistic. There's a. There's a diagnostic. Um, uh, Massive measuring the academic skills of university students from uh, Jones and Bonanno. It's used by the University of Sydney, and that allows you to give a, a holistic, a holistic um, commentary on the structure of the final text, not of the individual. Mm -hmm. so, so the students, as part of the the, the, the um, feedback from the teachers, were getting holistic feedback right. to the group and also individual. Individual feedback, and they were actually talking to each other as well about and uh, commenting on their section, individual sections. They knew they had to do this um, collaboratively, and that it was it was as a unit. But I felt that they didn't have when they when they did get instruction on what needed to be done, they, they, they acted upon it. And in many cases, you'll see students saying, "Please tell me what I should be doing, what I should be doing." But the issue was that the students didn't know how to explain how you might improve or something else. Although you did see some evidence of them knowing, ah, this should be written differently and, and telling the other student to do that. So, so there was a case of this, yeah. Sure. Well, yeah. It's nice to see. I was, I was really pleased to see that. Um, yes. This is a really strange because I felt like I was listening to something where I thought the findings were really interesting. I found the findings incredibly interesting. I thought they were, because they, they kind of, particularly the fault. But I was kind of confused at the, at the beginning. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It was a kind of, it was a, it was strange, like, the, the, I, I, towards the end, I, I was the presenter with the, these really interesting mm -hmm. findings, mm -hmm. but how that's really significant. Mm -hmm. You know, the notion that, you know, students can only work at, are operating at quite different mm -hmm. levels, individually and collaboratively, in a syncretic set, in a syncretic form. Mm -hmm. And the particular theory of learning that you've used mm -hmm. has actually brought out that finding. And I thought that's that's actually that's a really that's quite significant because I'm not sure I've ever heard someone pre actually produce that finding because it's, it, 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 it's not I've, ne I've never heard it. But I was still left with this kind of thing that I I was working with this idea of authentic science, mm -hmm. trying to work out what that meant the whole way through, mm -hmm. which which never which never came to me. Okay. None of, none of the, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm, but I am aware that at the end you, this this kind of notion of mm -hmm. this finding that you had. Mm -hmm was clearly significant, because it is. Because you mean, the notion that individually and collaboratively they're, they're working at syncretic, but at the same time, mm -hmm. almost at opposite yeah. points is, is, is a clearly significant finding. Well, you but know, there are, there, there, are, there are aspects to writing in science that you can do as an individual, and you can demonstrate a capacity to be able to use and create, um, you know... Uh, communicate effectively um, or typically of the genre that you would have um, as an individual but authentic science modern authentic science is about collaborative working um, findings because research projects into big problems like trying to find you know the god particle for example that's not done by one person it's done by teams and teams and teams of people so that so that communication communicating science 
is almost as important as knowing the science and being able to talk about the science. And I, I refer to that a little bit later that, that, that in, 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 at the end point of my thesis, that, that it's about the communication of science and, that, and being, talking, being able to express yourself in, in science is, a, is that issue. And that's just as much and just as important in terms of authentic science. I mean, if it was 100 years ago, you know, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be thinking about the collaborative nature to the same extent, you know. So, um, and that's the difficulty for me is trying to pin down what's authentic science because the, the language people have a very, very particular perspective. The, 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 the education theorists have a perspective and the scientists who are involved in this have a perspective. And trying to write a literature view that these were all of these... And then you have the, the electronic people who want to do computer-mediated learning they have a perspective. And um, trying to look at all of those, mean, and trying, and trying to distill a single perspective on authentic learning is very, very difficult. You know, it was difficult for me anyway. Okay? I mean, and, um, and, uh, so I focused on writing as my, as my measure because in the end, participation in the discourse of the community, the practice of the community, is really what defines you, you know, in terms of, you know, Doing science, you know. I mean, so um, so that was kind of tricky, but it's a good, it's a good point, and and, and, I, and I work on that, you know, and I work and try to make it a little bit more clear. I mean, as I say, this is the first time I've I've, I've done this in front of an audience. So I mean, I think the only conversations I've had of them were Caroline and Chris, you know. So it's I've never heard, I've not heard anyone else say that. I mean, I'm, I, I am speaking through your your finding, which is that young people work collaboratively without working with each other. And, and it's almost as you say it, it goes against everything as a secondary teacher that we're told. Because it's, it's, it's quite powerful. It's an incredibly powerful concept. I mean, I've not heard anyone else say it. It's a really powerful concept. I have to think it through, actually. It's such a powerful concept. What, what do you mean it goes against everything? Cause well, because the, as a secondary teacher, as a secondary teacher, the, the, prevailing, uh, the prevailing pedagogical impetus in classrooms is to put young people together in groups yeah, and, to, and, to, and to have them work and that collaboration is, is always is always, that they're always, once they're working collaboratively they're always engaged in productive I think he puts it very articulately um, when I've heard him talking that one of the problems with group work and why it's seen as so ineffectual is precisely because actually what happens is people put them put students into groups, but then the the learning aim um, for the group is still for individuals. So exactly yeah. this effect happens. That's why I asked yeah. the question. Yeah, yeah, of course, and but, but um, you need to be really clear about, about the, mm. the, the output. I mean, I mean, I work in collaborative science teams, so our output is to produce something collaboratively. Yeah, yeah. we're doing, and, and and it is about the writing at the end. But I think um, I've just been saying to Carla just beforehand that that. Sometimes you got to find the right papers, you know. And, the right, and I mean, I found one by Wales in 2005, which was the complementary contributions of Vygotsky and Halliday. And that's really brilliant because you, you, you have you have these you have the sociocultural people and the language. If you want to think of them in two groups, and it just brings it together. It was really really useful for me as a as a way to to look at at well all that I, I was wondering, I do I need to be doing the the, the sociocultural or sociolinguistics and then material but I was really able to bring it together and understood very very late okay after I'd done all the rest of the reading you know and then but um, I think if I was doing it again I'd probably start with that paper and then at the top you know rather than get to that point and, and you know I might have had a different a different thesis but you know it is what it is and research is what it is
you know, I'm happy with that at this point. Can I just interrupt for a minute? And we can carry on this for a minute, but I think I'm going to let our cameraman off the hook. Yeah. Uh, and I would like to just thank Stephen Pilaja, who has come in with a message on the internet. Uh, to say that uh, he's been watching from Malaysia and that he misses everyone and it's great to be here. So thank you for that, Stephen. But I think we can let our, our internet audience uh, leave now and we can carry on uh, discussing together. <laughs>